0: Welcome everyone to episode 74 of Ohio Unsolved. I'm your host Matthew, and welcome back from our week off. I'm still trying to get to 500 subscribers on YouTube, so if you're not subscribed yet, what are you waiting for? Once I hit 500 subscribers, I'm going to release a YouTube exclusive bonus episode, and I'm going to do a giveaway for one of the few Ohio Unsolved t-shirts that I have left, and a sticker and button pack. So if you want to get in on that, make sure that you're subscribed on YouTube. Now, our episode today is an intense one, and I'm going to be talking about serial killer John Wayne Gacy. If you know nothing about him, buckle up, because it's going to be a wild ride. But let's just get into the episode. Everyone sit back, make sure to lock your doors and windows, and get ready for Ohio Unsolved. story is graphic, so listener discretion is advised. John Wayne Gacy was an American serial killer and sex offender who raped, tortured, and murdered at least 33 young men and boys in Illinois near Chicago. He became known as the Killer Clown due to his public performances as Pogo the Clown. Gacy committed all of his murders inside of his ranch-style house in Norwood Park Township. Typically, he would lure a victim to his home and dupe them into donning handcuffs on the pretext of demonstrating a magic trick. He would then rape and torture his captive before killing them, either by asphyxiation or strangulation, with a garot. 26 victims were buried in the crawl space of his home and three others were buried elsewhere on his property. Four were discarded in the Des Plaines River. Gacy had previously been convicted in 1968 of the sodomy of a teenage boy in Waterloo, Iowa, and was sentenced to 10 years imprisonment, but he only served 18 months. He murdered his first victim in 1972, had murdered twice more by the end of 1975 and murdered at least 30 subsequent victims after his divorce from his second wife in 1976. The investigation into the disp- disappearance of Desplaines teenager Robert Peist led to Gacy's arrest on December 21, 1978. His conviction for 33 murders then covered the most homicides in the United States legal history. Gacy was sentenced to death on March 13, 1980. On death row at Menard Correctional Center, he spent much of his time painting, and he was executed by lethal injection at Stateville Correctional Center on May 10, 1994. John Wayne Gacy was born at Edgewater Hospital in Chicago, Illinois on March 17, 1942 the second of three children and only son of John Stanley Gacy and Marion Elaine Gacy. His father was an auto repair mechanic and World War I veteran and his mother was a homemaker. Gacy was close to his mother and two sisters but he endured a difficult relationship with his father who was an alcoholic who physically abused his family. The elder Gacy frequently belittled his son calling him dumb and stupid and comparing him unfavorably with his sisters. One of Gacy's earliest childhood memories was of his father beating him with a leather belt for accidentally disarranging components of a car engine that he had assembled when he was four years old. His mother tried to shield her son from his father's abuse, which only resulted in accusations that he was a sissy and a mama's boy who would, quote, probably grow up queer. Despite this mistreatment, however, Gacy still loved his father, but he felt that he was never good enough in his father's eyes. In 1949, Gacy's father was informed that his son and another boy had been caught sexually fondling a young girl. His father whipped him with a razor-strop as punishment. The same year. A family friend and contractor would sometimes molest Gacy in his truck. Gacy never told his father about this, afraid that his father would blame him. Gacy was an overweight and unathletic child. Because of a heart condition, he was told to avoid all sports at school. During the fourth grade, he began to experience blackouts. He was hospitalized on occasion because of these episodes, and also, in 1957, for a burst appendix. Gacy later estimated that between the ages of 14 and 18, he had spent almost a year in a hospital, and attributed the decline of his grades to missing school. His father suspected these episodes were an effort to gain sympathy and attention, and openly accused his son of faking the condition as Gacy lie in the hospital bed. Although his mother, sisters, and a few close friends never doubted his illness, Gacy's medical condition was never conclusively diagnosed. One of Gacy's friends in high school recalled several instances when his father ridiculed or beat his son without provocation. On one occasion, in 1957, he witnessed him, Gacy's father, emerging drunk from the family basement to begin belittling then hitting his son for no apparent reason. John's mother attempted to intervene as her son simply put up his hands to defend himself. According to the friend, Gacy never struck his father back during these altercations. In 1960, at the age of 18, John Wayne Gacy became involved in politics working as an assistant precinct captain for a Democratic Party candidate in his neighborhood. This led to more criticism from his father, who accused his son of being a patsy. Gacy later speculated his decision to become involved in politics was actually to seek the acceptance from others that he had never received from his father. The same year Gacy's political involvement began, his father bought him a car. He kept the vehicle's title in his own name until Gacy had finished paying for it. These monthly payments took several years for him to complete. His father would confiscate the keys to the vehicle if Gacy did not do as he was told. In April of 1962, Gacy purchased an extra set of keys after his father confiscated the original set. In his response, his father removed the distributor cap, keeping the component for three days. Gacy recalled that he felt totally sick and drained after this incident. Hours after his father replaced the distributor cap, Gacy left home and drove to Las Vegas with $136 to his name in the hope of residing with a female cousin who had relocated to the city after severing ties with her family two years prior. He alternately slept in his car or cheap motels over the course of three days as he traveled to the city. Gacy found work within the city's ambulance service before he was transferred to work as an attendant at Palm Mortuary. As a mortuary attendant, Gacy slept on a cot behind the embalming room. He worked there for three months, observing morticians, embalming dead bodies, and occasionally serving as a pallbearer. Gacy later confessed that one evening while alone, He had clambered into the coffin of a deceased teenage male, embracing and caressing the body before experiencing a sense of shock. This prompted Gacy to call his mother the next day and ask whether his father would allow him to return home. His father agreed, and the same day he drove back to Chicago. On returning home, Gacy enrolled at the Northwestern Business College. Despite having failed to graduate from high school, He graduated in 1963 and took a management trainee position with the Nunn-Busch Shoe Company. In 1964, the shoe company transferred him to Springfield, Illinois to work as a salesman and eventually promoted him to manager of his department. In March of that year, he became engaged to Marilyn Myers, a coworker. During their courtship, Gacy joined the local Jaycees and worked tirelessly for them being named Key Man in April 1964. That same year, he had his second homosexual experience. According to Gacy, after one of his colleagues in the Springfield J.C.s plied him with drinks and invited him to spend the evening on his sofa, he agreed. The colleague then performed oral sex on him while he was drunk. By 1965, Gacy had ridden to the position of Vice President of the Springfield J.C.s. The same year, he was named the third most outstanding J.C. in the state of Illinois. After a six-month courtship, Gacy and Myers married in September 1964. Marilyn's father subsequently purchased three Kentucky Fried Chicken restaurants in Waterloo, Iowa. The couple then moved there so Gacy could manage one of the restaurants, with the understanding that they would move into Marilyn's parents' former home which had been vacated for the couple. The offer was lucrative, and Gacy would receive $15,000 per year, plus a share of the restaurant's profits. Following the obligatory completion of a management course, Gacy relocated to Waterloo with his wife. He then opened a club in his basement where his employees could drink alcohol and play pool. Although Gacy employed teenagers of both sexes at his restaurants, He socialized only with the young men. Gacy gave many of them alcohol before he would make sexual advances. If they rebuffed him, he would claim his advances were simply jokes or a test of morals. Gacy's wife would give birth to a son in February 1966 and a daughter in March 1967. Gacy later described this period of his life as perfect. He had finally earned his father's approval. When Gacy's parents paid for a family visit in July of 1966, his father privately apologized for the physical and emotional abuse that he had inflicted throughout his son's childhood and adolescence before happily saying, Son, I was wrong about you, as he shook Gacy's hand. In Waterloo, Gacy joined the local Jaycees chapter, regularly offering extended hours to the organization in addition to the 12- and 14-hour days that he worked managing the three KFC restaurants. At meetings, Gacy often provided fried chicken and insisted on being called Colonel. He and other Waterloo Jaycees were also deeply involved in wife-swapping, prostitution, pornography, and drug use. Although Gacy was considered ambitious and something of a bragger, the other Jaycees held him in high regard for his fundraising work and in 1967 named him Outstanding Vice President of the Waterloo Jaycees. The same year, Gacy served on the Board of Directors. In August of 1967, John Wayne Gacy sexually assaulted 15-year-old Donald Voorhees, Jr., the son of Donald E. Voorhees, a local politician and a fellow Jaycee. Gacy lured Voorhees to his house upon the promise of showing him heterosexual stag films regularly played at J.C. events. Gacy for Voorhees with alcohol, allowing him to watch a stag movie, and then persuaded him to engage in mutual oral sex, adding, quote, You have to have sex with a man before you start having sex with women. Over the, over the following three months, Gacy similarly abused several other youths, including one whom he he encouraged to have sex with his own wife, before blackmailing him into performing oral sex on him. Gacy also tricked several teenagers into believing that he was commissioned to conduct homosexual experiments in the interests of scientific research, and he paid them up to fifty cents each, fifty dollars each. In March 1968, Voorhees reported to his father that Gacy had sexually assaulted him. Voorhees senior immediately informed the police who arrested Gacy and subsequently charged him with performing oral sodomy on Voorhees and the attempted assault of 16-year-old Edward Lynch. Gacy vehemently denied the charges and demanded to take a polygraph test. The results of these tests were indicative of deception when Gacy denied any wrongdoing in relation to both young men. Gacy publicly denied any wrongdoing and insisted the charges against him were politically motivated. Voorhees Sr. had opposed Gacy's nomination for an appointment as president of the Iowa JCS. Several fellow JCS found Gacy's story credible and rallied to his support. However, on May 10, 1968, Gacy was indicted on the sodomy charge. On August 30, 1968, Gacy persuaded one of his employees, 18-year-old Russell Schroeder, to physically assault Voorhees in an effort to discourage the boy from testifying against him at court. Gacy promised to pay Schroeder $300. Schroeder agreed, and in early September lured Voorhees to an isolated country park, sprayed mace in his eyes, and then beat him. Voorhees escaped and reported the assault to police, identifying Schroeder as his attacker. They arrested him the following day. While initially denying any involvement, Schroeder soon confessed to assaulting Voorhees, indicating that he had done so at Gacy's request. Police arrested Gacy and laid an additional charge of hiring Schroeder to assault and intimidate Voorhees against him. On September 12th, John Wayne Gacy was ordered to undergo a psychiatric evaluation at the psychiatric hospital of the University of Iowa. Two doctors examined him over a period of 17 days before concluding that he had an antisocial personality disorder, and was unlikely to benefit from any therapy or medical treatment, and that his behavior pattern was likely to bring him into repeated conflict with society. The doctors concluded he was mentally competent to stand trial. On November seventh, 1968. Gacy pled guilty to one count of sodomy in relation to Voorhees, but not guilty to the charges related to other youths. Gacy claimed Voorhees had offered himself to him and that he had acted out of curiosity. His story was not believed, and Gacy was convicted of sodomy on September 3rd and sentenced to 10 years' imprisonment to be served at the Anamosa State Penitentiary. That same day, Gacy's wife petitioned for divorce, requesting she be awarded the couple's home and property, sole custody of their two children and alimony. The court ruled in her favor and the divorce was finalized on September 18, 1969. Gacy never saw his first wife or children again. During his incarceration in the Anamosa State Penitentiary, Gacy rapidly acquired a reputation as a model prisoner. Within months of his arrival, he had risen to the position of head cook. He had also joined the inmate JC chapter and increased its membership from 50 to 650 men in less than 18 months. Gacy also secured an increase in the inmates' daily pay in the prison mess hall and supervised several projects to improve conditions for inmates in the prison. By the fall of 1969, Gacy had overseen the installation of a miniature golf course in the prison recreation yard. He was presented with a distinguished service award for his tireless efforts within the inmate J.C. chapter in february of 1970 in june 1969 gacy was denied parole to prepare for a second scheduled parole hearing in may of 1970 he completed 16 high school courses for which he obtained his diploma in november of 1969 on christmas day in 69 gacy's father died from cirrhosis of of the liver. When informed of his father's death, Gacy collapsed to the floor sobbing. His request for supervised compassionate leave to attend the funeral was denied. Gacy was granted parole with 12 months probation on June 18, 1970, after having served 18 months of his 10-year sentence. Conditions of his probation included that Gacy relocate to Chicago to live with his mother and that he must observe a 10 p.m. curfew. On his release, Gacy told friend and fellow J.C. Clarence Lane, who picked him up from the prison and had remained steadfast in his belief of Gacy's innocence, that he would never go back to jail, and that he intended to re-establish himself in Waterloo. However, within 24 hours of his release, Gacy had relocated to Chicago. He arrived there by bus on June 19th and shortly thereafter obtained a job as a short order cook in a restaurant. On February 12, 1971, Gacy was charged with sexually assaulting a teenage boy who claimed that he had lured him into his car at Chicago's Greyhound bus terminal and driven him to his home where he had attempted to force the boy into sex. The court dismissed this complaint when the boy failed to appear. On June 22nd, Gacy was arrested and charged with aggravated sexual battery and reckless conduct. The arrest was in response to a complaint filed by a youth who claimed that Gacy had flashed a sheriff's badge, lured him into his car, and forced him to perform oral sex. These charges were dropped after the complainant attempted to blackmail Gacy. The Iowa Board of Parole did not learn of these incidents, and eight months later, on October 18, 1971, Gacy's parole ended. The following month, the records of Gacy's previous criminal convictions in Iowa were sealed. With financial assistance from his mother, Gacy bought a ranch house near the village of Norridge in unincorporated Norwood Park Township of Illinois, part of the metropolitan Chicago. He resided at the address 8213 West Somerdale Avenue until his arrest in 1978 and, according to Gacy, committed all of his murders there. Gacy was active in his local community and helpful toward his neighbors. He willingly loaned his construction tools and plowed snow from the neighborhood walks free of charge. Between 1974 and 1978. He would host annual summer parties, each devoted to a particular theme. These events were attended by up to 400 people, including politicians and business associates. In August of 1971, shortly after Gacy and his mother moved into the house, he became engaged to Carol Hoff, who he had briefly dated in high school. They were married on July 1, 1972. Carol and her two young daughters from a previous marriage moved into Gacy's home soon after the couple announced their engagement. His mother moved out of the house shortly before the wedding. By 1975, Gacy had told his wife that he was bisexual. After the couple had sex on Mother's Day that year, he informed her this would be the last time they would ever have sex. He began spending most evenings away from home only to return in the early hours of the morning with the excuse that he had been working late or conducting business meetings. Carol observed Gacy bringing teenage boys into the garage in the early hours and also found gay pornography and men's wallets and identification inside the house. When when she confronted Gacy about who these items belonged to, he informed her angrily that it was none of her business. Following a heated argument when she failed to balance a checkbook correctly in October of 75, Carol asked Gacy for a divorce. He agreed to his wife's request, although by mutual consent, she continued to live at the West Somerdale house until February of 76, when she and her daughters moved into their own apartment. One month later, on March 2nd, the Gacy's divorce decreed upon the false grounds of Gacy's infidelity with women. Was finalized. In 1971, Gacy established a part-time construction business, PDM Contractors. The initials PDM were for painting, decorating, and maintenance. With the approval of his probation officer, Gacy worked evenings on his construction contracts while working as a cur- cook during the during the day. Initially, He undertook minor repair work, such as sign-writing, pouring concrete, and redecorating, but later expanded to include projects such as interior design, remodeling, installation, assembly, and landscaping. In mid-1973, Gacy quit his job as a cook so he could commit fully to his construction business. By 1975, PDM was expanding rapidly and Gacy was working up to 16 hours per day. In March 1977, he became a supervisor for P.E. Systems, a firm specializing in the remodeling of drugstores. Between P.E. Systems and PDM, Gacy worked on up to four projects simultaneously and frequently traveled to other states. By 1978, PDM's annual revenue was over $200,000. Though his membership in a local moose club, through his membership, excuse me, in a local moose club, Gacy became aware of a, quote, jolly joker clown club whose members regularly performed at fundraising events and parades in addition to voluntarily entertaining hospitalized children. In late 1975, Gacy joined the clown club and created his own clown character. Pogo the Clown and Patches the Clown, devising his own makeup and costumes. He described Pogo as a happy clown, whereas Patches was a more serious character. Gacy seldom earned money from his performances, and later said that acting as a clown allowed him to regress into childhood. He performed as both Pogo and Patches at numerous local parties political functions, charitable events, and children's hospitals. On occasion, he would briefly drink at a local bar after performing as either of his clown personas before returning home. Gacy's voluntary public service as a clown throughout the years of his murders led him to be known as the Killer Clown. Much of PDM's workforce consisted of high school students and young men. Gacy would often proposition his workers for sex, or insist on sexual favors in return for acts such as lending his vehicles, financial assistance, or promotions. Gacy also claimed to own guns, once telling an employee, Do you know how easy it would be to get one of my guns and kill you? And how easy it would be to get rid of the body? In 1973, Gacy and a teenage employee traveled to Florida to view a property that Gacy had purchased. On the first night in Florida, Gacy raped the employee in their hotel room. After returning to Chicago, this employee drove to Gacy's house and beat him in his front yard. Gacy told his wife that he had been attacked for refusing to pay him for poor quality painting work. In May 1975, Gacy hired 15-year-old Anthony Antonucci two months later. He went to Antonucci's home, knowing the youth had injured his foot in an accident the previous day. The two drank a bottle of wine and then watched a heterosexual stag film before Gacy wrestled Antonucci to the floor and cuffed his hands behind his back. One cuff was loose, and Antonucci freed his arm while Gacy was out of the room. When Gacy returned, Antonucci, a high school wrestler, pounced upon him. He wrestled Gacy to the floor, obtained possession of the handcuff key, and cuffed Gacy's hands behind his back. At first, Gacy threatened Anatucci, and then calmed down and promised to leave if he would remove the handcuffs. Anatucci agreed and Gacy left. Anatucci would later recall that Gacy told him, Not only are you the only one who got out of the cuffs, you got them on me. He continued working for PDM for nine months after this incident, and Gacy made no further attempts to assault him. On July 26, 1976, Gacy picked up 18-year-old David Cram as he hitchhiked on Elston Avenue. Gacy offered him a job with PDM, and he began to work the same evening. On August 21, Cram moved into his house. The next day, Cram and Gacy had several drinks to celebrate his 19th birthday with Gacy dressed as Pogo. Gacy conned Cram into donning the handcuffs, his wrist cuffed in front of his body rather than behind. He swung Cram around while he was holding the chain link linking the cuffs. Then he said that he intended to rape him. Cram kicked Gacy in the face and freed himself from the handcuffs. A month later, Gacy appeared at Cram's bedroom door, intending to rape him, saying, Dave, you really don't know who I am. Maybe it would be good if you give me what I want. Cram resisted, straddling Gacy, who left the bedroom, stating, You ain't no fun. Cram moved out on October 5th and left PDM, although he did periodically work for Gacy over the the following two years. Shortly after Cram moved out of Gacy's house, another employee, 18 year old Michael Rossi, moved in. Rossi had worked for PDM since May 23, 1976. He lived with Gacy until April of 77. Rossi sometimes assisted Gacy in clowning at grand openings of businesses, Gacy as Pogo and Rossi as Patches. Gacy murdered at least 33 young men and boys and buried 26 of them in the crawl space of his house. His victims included people that he knew and random individuals lured from Chicago's Greyhound bus station or simply off the streets with the promise of a job with PDM, an offer of a drink or drugs or money for sex. Some victims were grabbed by force, others conned into believing Gacy who often carried a sheriff's badge and had spotlights on his black Oldsmobile, was a policeman. Gacy usually lured a lone victim to his house, although on more than one occasion, Gacy also had what he called doubles, two victims killed in the same evening. Inside Gacy's home, his usual MO was to apply a youth with, with drink, drugs, or generally gain his trust. He would then produce a pair of handcuffs to show them a magic trick, sometimes as part of a clowning routine. He typically cuffed his own hands behind his back, and then he released himself with the key which he hid between his fingers. He then offered to show his intended victim how to release himself from the handcuffs. With his victim manacled and unable to free himself, Gacy then made a statement to the effect that The trick is, you have to have the key. Gacy referred to this act of restraining his victim as the handcuff trick. Having restrained his victim, Gacy proceeded to rape and torture his captive. He frequently began by sitting on or straddling himself above the victim's chest before forcing the victim to fillet him. Gacy then inflicted acts of torture, including burning with cigars, making his captive imitate a horse as he sat on their back and pulled upon makeshift reins around their necks in violation with foreign objects such as dildos and prescription bottles after he had sodomized his captive to immobilize his captive's legs before engaging in acts of torture gacy frequently tied up their ankles to two by fours with handcuffs attached at each end an act inspired by the Houston mass murderers. He also verbally taunted many of his victims throughout their continued abuse and was known to have drugged or forced several victims to crawl into his bathroom where he partially drowned them in the bathtub before repeatedly reviving them enabling him to continue his prolonged assault. In instances when a victim had pled to be killed as opposed to continuing to endure torture Gacy would make a statement to the effect that he would kill his victim when he wanted to. Gacy typically murdered his victims by placing a rope tourniquet around their neck before progressively tightening the rope with a hammer handle. He referred to this act as the rope trick, frequently informing his captive, this is the latest trick. In at least one instance, he read part of Psalm 23 as he tightened the rope around his victim's neck. Occasionally, the victim had convulsed for an hour or two before dying, although several victims died by asphyxiation from cloth gags stuffed deep into their throat. Except for his two final victims, all were murdered between 3 a.m. and 6 a.m. After death, Gacy usually stored the victim's bodies under his bed for up to 24 hours before burying his victim in the crawl space, where he periodically poured quicklime to hasten the decomposition of his victims. Some victims' bodies were taken to his garage and embalmed prior to their burial. Gacy's first known murder occurred on January 3, 1972. According to Gacy's later account, following a family party on the evening of January 2, He decided to drive to the Civic Center in the Loop to view a display of ice sculptures in the early hours of the following morning. He then lured a 16-year-old named Timothy Jack McCoy from Chicago's Greyhound bus terminal into his car. McCoy was returning from a Christmas vacation in Eaton Rapids, Michigan, to his father's home in Omaha, Nebraska, and informed Gacy in their initial conversation his connecting bus to Nebraska was not due until noon. Gacy took McCoy on a sightseeing tour of Chicago, and then drove him to his home with the promise that he could spend the remainder of the night and be driven back to the station in time to catch his bus. Prior to McCoy's identification, he was known simply as Greyhound Bus Boy. Gacy claimed he woke early the following morning to find McCoy standing in his bedroom doorway with a kitchen knife in his hand. He then jumped from his bed and McCoy raised both arms in a gesture of surrender, tilting the the knife upwards and accidentally cutting Gacy's forearm. Gacy twisted the knife away from McCoy's wrist, banged his head against the bedroom wall, kicked him against his wardrobe, and walked towards him. McCoy then kicked Gacy in the stomach, doubling him over. Gacy then grabbed McCoy, shouting, Motherfucker, I'll kill you! He then wrestled McCoy to the floor and stabbed him repeatedly in the chest as he straddled him. As McCoy lay dying, Gacy claimed he washed the knife in his bathroom, then went to his kitchen and saw an open carton of eggs and a slab of unsliced bacon on his kitchen table. McCoy had also set the table for two. He had walked into Gacy's room to wake him while absent-mindedly carrying the kitchen knife in his hand. Gacy buried McCoy in his crawl space and later covered his grave with a layer of concrete. In an interview several years after his arrest, Gacy said that immediately after killing McCoy, he felt totally drained, yet noted that as he stabbed McCoy and as he listened to the gurgulations and gasping for air that he had experienced a mind-numbing orgasm. He added, That's when I realized that death was the ultimate thrill. Gacy said the second time that he committed murder was around January of 1974. This victim remains unidentified. Gacy strangled him and then placed the body in his closet before burial. He later stated that bodily fluids leaked from the victim's mouth and nose, staining his carpet. As a result, Gacy regularly stuffed cloth rags the victim's own underwear or sock into the mouths of the subsequent victims prevents such such a leakage from occurring prior to their burial. On July thirty first, nineteen seventy five, John Butkovich, an eighteen year old PDM employee from Lombard, disappeared. Butkovich's car was found parked near the corner of Sheridan and Lawrence, with his jacket and wallet inside, and the keys still in the ignition. The day before his disappearance. Butkovich had confronted Gacy over two weeks outstanding back pay. Butkovich's father, a Yugoslav immigrant, called Gacy, who claimed that he was happy to help search for his son, but was sorry that he had run away. When questioned by police, Gacy said Butkovich and two friends had arrived at his house demanding the overdue pay, but they had reached a compromise and all three had left. Over the following three years... Butkovich's parents called police more than 100 times, urging them to investigate Gacy further. Gacy later admitted to incur encountering Butkovich exiting his car on the corner of West Lawrence Avenue, waving to attract his attention. According to Gacy, Butkovich approached his car, stating, "I want to talk to you." Gacy then invited Gacy invited Butkovich into his car. Then invited him back to his home, ostensibly to settle the issue of his overdue wages. At his home, Gacy would offer him a drink, then conned him into allowing his wrist to be cuffed behind his back. Gacy later confessed to having sat on the kid's chest for a while before he strangled him. He stowed Butkovich's body in his garage, intending to bury the body in the crawl space. When his wife and stepdaughters returned home, earlier than expected, Gacy had buried Butkovich's body under the concrete floor of the tool room extension of his garage in an empty space where he initially intended to dig a drain tile. One month after his divorce was finalized, Gacy abducted and murdered 18-year-old Daryl Sampson. He was last seen alive in Chicago on April 6, 1976. Gacy buried him under the dining room with a section of cloth lodged in his throat. Five weeks later, on the afternoon of May 14th, 15-year-old Randall Reffitt disappeared shortly after returning to his uptown home from a dental appointment. He was last seen by his grandmother later that afternoon. Hours after Reffitt was last seen by his family, 14-year-old Samuel Stapleton vanished as he walked home from his sister's apartment. He and Reffet were close acquaintances. Both were buried together in the crawl space, and investigators believe the two were murdered the same evening. On June 3rd, Gacy Gacy killed a 17-year-old Lakeview teenager named Michael Bonin. He disappeared while traveling from Chicago to Waukegan. Gacy strangled Bonin with a ligature and buried him under the spare bedroom. Ten days later, Gacy murdered a 16-year-old uptown youth named William Carroll and buried him in a common grave in the crawl space. Carroll seems to have been the first of four victims known to have been murdered between June 13th and August 6, 1976. Three were between 16 and 17 years old, and one unidentified murder victim appears to have been an adult. On August 5th, a 16 year old Minnesota youth named James Hackinson is last known to have phoned his family, possibly from Gacy's home. Hackinson died of suffocation. His body was buried in the crawl space beneath the body of a 17 year old Bennisville youth named Rick Johnston, who was last seen alive on August 6th. Gacy is thought to have murdered two further unidentified males between August and October of 1976. On October 24th, Gacy abducted and killed teenage friends Kenneth Parker and Michael Marino. The two were last seen outside a restaurant on Clark Street in Chicago. Two days later, a 19-year-old construction worker, William Bundy, disappeared after informing his family that he was to attend a party. Bundy died of suffocation. Gacy buried the body beneath his master bedroom. He had apparently worked for Gacy. Between November and December of 76, Gacy murdered a 21-year-old named Francis Alexander. His last contact with his family was a phone call to his mother made sometime in November. Alexander was buried in the crawlspace directly beneath the room Gacy used as his office. In December 1976, another PDM employee, 17-year-old Gregory Godzik, disappeared. His girlfriend last saw him outside her house after he had driven her home following a date. Godzik had worked for PDM for less than three weeks before he disappeared. He had informed his family that Gacy had had him dig trenches for some kind of drain tiles in his crawl space. Godzik's car was later found abandoned in Niles. His parents and older sister, Eugenia, contacted Gacy about his disappearance. Gacy claimed that he had run away from home, having indicated before that he had wished to do so. Gacy also claimed to have received an answering machine message from Godzik shortly after he had disappeared. When asked if he could play back the message to Godzik's parents, Gacy said that he had erased it. On January 20th, 1977, Gacy lured 19-year-old John... I'm going to butcher this... uh, S-Z-Y-C I I don't know how to pronounce that to his house on the pretext of buying his Plymouth satellite he later confessed to strangling John in his spare bedroom claiming Rossi was asleep in the house the following morning Gacy later sold the car to Rossi for $300 two months later on March 15th a 20 year old Michigan native named John Prestige disappeared John was last seen leaving a near street side restaurant. He was buried in the crawl space above the body of Francis Alexander. Shortly before his disappearance, Prestige had mentioned that he had obtained work with a local contractor. Gacy murdered one additional unidentified youth and buried him in the crawl space in the spring or early summer of 1977. The exact time of this murder is unknown. On July 5th, Gacy killed a 19 year old from Crystal Lake, Matthew Bowman. Bowman's mother last saw him at a suburban train station. He had intended to travel to Harwood Heights for a scheduled court appointment regarding an unpaid parking ticket. The following month, Rossi was arrested for stealing gasoline while driving Sizek's car. The gas station attendant noted that the license plate and police traced the car to Gacy's house. When questioned, Gacy told officers that Sizik had sold the car to him in February, saying that he needed money to leave town. A check of the VIN confirmed the car had belonged to him. The police did not pursue the matter further, although they did inform Sizik's mother that her son had sold his car. By the end of 1977... It is known Gacy had murdered six more young men between the ages of 16 and 21. The first of these victims was 18-year-old Robert Gilroy, the son of Chicago Police Sergeant, last seen alive on September 15th. Gilroy lived just four blocks from Gacy's house. He was murdered and buried in the crawl space. On September 12th, Gacy had flown to Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania to supervise a remodeling project and did not return to Chicago until September 16th. Because Gacy is known to have been in another state at the time Gilroy was last seen, this is cited to support Gacy's claim of assistance from one or more accomplices in several homicides. Ten days after Gilroy was last seen, 19-year-old former U.S. Marine John Mowry disappeared after leaving his mother's house to walk to his apartment. Gacy strangled Mowry and buried his body beneath the master bedroom. On October 17th, 21-year-old Minnesota native Russell Nelson disappeared. He was last seen outside of a Chicago bar. Nelson was looking for contracting work. Gacy murdered him and buried him beneath the guest bedroom. Less than four weeks later, Gacy murdered a 16-year-old Kalamazoo teenager named Robert Winch and buried him in the crawl space. On November 18th, 20-year-old father-of-one, Tommy Bowling disappeared after leaving a Chicago bar. Three weeks after the murder of Tommy Bowling on December 9th, a 19-year-old U.S. Marine, David Talzma, disappeared after informing his mother that he was to attend a rock concert in Hammond, Indiana. Gacy strangled Talzma with a ligature and buried him in the crawl space close to the body of John Mowry. On December 30th, Gacy abducted 19 year old college student Robert Donnelly from a Chicago bus stop at gunpoint. Gacy drove him to his home where he raped, tortured, and repeatedly dunked Donnelly's head into a bathtub until he passed out. Gacy taunted him with statements such as, Aren't we playing fun games tonight? Donnelly later testified at Gacy's trial that he was in such pain that he asked Gacy to kill him. Gacy replied, I'm getting around to it. After several hours, Gacy drove Donnelly to his workplace and released him, warning him that if he complained to police, they would not believe him. Donnelly reported the assault, and police questioned Gacy on January 6, 1978. Gacy admitted to having had, quote, slave sex relationship with Donnelly, but insisted everything was consensual, adding that he didn't pay the kid the money he had promised him. The police believed him and filed no charges. The following month, Gacy killed 19-year-old William Kindred, who disappeared on February 16th after telling his fiancée, who knew Gacy, that he was to spend the evening in a bar. Kindred was the final victim Gacy buried in his crawlspace. On March 21st, Gacy lured 26-year-old Jeffrey Ringnall into his car. Shortly after Jeffrey entered the car... Gacy chloroformed him and drove him to his house, where his arms and head were restrained in a pillory device affixed to the ceiling, and his feet locked into another device. Gacy explained to Ringnall that he had complete control over him, and he intended to do whatever he wanted, when he wanted, and how he wanted. He then raped and tortured Rignall with various instruments, including lit candles and whips, and repeatedly chloroformed him into unconsciousness. Gacy then drove Rignall to Chicago's Lincoln Park, where he was dumped, unconscious but alive. Rignall managed to stagger to his girlfriend's apartment. Police were informed of the assault, but did not investigate Gacy. Rignall was able to recall it through the haze of that night. The Oldsmobile, the Kennedy Expressway, and particular side streets. He and two friends staked out the Cumberland exit of the Expressway, and in April, Rignall saw the Oldsmobile, which he and his friends followed to eighty two thirteen West Somerdale. Police obtained an arrest warrant, and Gacy was arrested on july fifteenth. He faced trial for assault and battery against Rignall at the time of his arrest. By mid nineteen seventy eight, the crawl space had no room for further bodies Gacy later confessed to police that he considered stowing bodies in his attic initially but had been worried about complications arising from leakage therefore he chose to dispose of his victims off of the I-55 bridge into the Des Plaines River Gacy stated that he had thrown five bodies into this river in 1978 one of which he believed had landed on a passing barge Only four bodies were ever found. The first known victim thrown from the I-55 bridge was 20-year-old Timothy O'Rourke. He was murdered in mid-June after leaving his Dover Street apartment to purchase cigarettes. Shortly before his disappearance, O'Rourke had told his roommate, a contractor on the northwest side, had offered him a job. On November 4th, Gacy killed 19-year-old Frank Landigan. He was last seen alive by his father, walking along Foster Avenue. His naked body was found close to an inlet in the Des Plaines River by two duck hunters in Chanahan on November 12th. On November 24th, a 24-year-old Elmwood Park resident, James Mazara, disappeared after sharing Thanksgiving dinner with his family. James had informed his sister the day prior to his disappearance that he was working in the construction industry and doing alright. He was last seen alive walking in the direction of Bug House Square carrying a suitcase. On the afternoon of December 11, 1978, Gacy visited the Nissan Pharmacy in Des Plaines to discuss a potential remodeling deal with the store owner, Phil Torf. While he was within earshot of 15-year-old part-time employee Robert Peist, Gacy mentioned his firm, often-hired teenage boys, at a starting wage of $5 per hour, almost double the pay Peist earned at the pharmacy. Shortly after Gacy left the pharmacy, Peist's mother arrived at the store to drive her son home so the family could celebrate her birthday together. Peist asked his mother to wait, adding that some contractor wants to talk to me about a job. He left the store at 9 p.m., promising to return shortly. Peist was murdered shortly after 10 p.m. at Gacy's home. Gacy later stated that at his house, he gave Peist a soft drink before asking whether there was anything he wouldn't do for the right price, to which Peist replied that he did not mind working hard. In response, Gacy stated, Good money could be earned by hustling, although Peist was dismissive. Gacy then duped Peist into donning the handcuffs before saying, I'm going to rape you and you can't do anything about it, as Peist began weeping. Gacy's subsequent statements regarding the events to unfold varied, although in one of his initial statements, he claimed Pice failed to resist as he removed the boys' trousers. He also stated that as he placed a rope around Peist's neck, the boy was crying and scared. Gacy admitted to having received a phone call from a business acquaintance as Peist lie dying, suffocating on his bedroom floor. When Pice failed to return home, his family filed a missing person report with a Desplains belief. Torf named Gacy as the contractor Peist had most likely left the store to talk to about the job. Lieutenant Joseph Kosnensack, whose son attended Main West High School like Peist, chose to investigate Gacy further. Having spoken with Peist's mother on the morning of December 12th, the the lieutenant became convinced Peist had not run away from home. A routine check of Gacy's criminal background revealed that he had an outstanding battery charge against him in Chicago and had served a prison sentence in Iowa for the sodomy of a fifteen-year-old boy. The lieutenant and two Desplanes police officers visited Gacy at his home the following evening. Gacy indicated that he had seen two youths working at the pharmacy, and he had asked one of them who he believed to be Peist, whether there were any remodeling materials behind the store. He was adamant, however, that he had not offered Pice a job, and had only returned to the pharmacy shortly after 8 p.m., as he had left his appointment book at the store. Casey promised to come to the station later that evening to make a statement confirming this, indicating that he was unable to do so at the moment, as his uncle had just died. When questioned as to how soon he could come to the police station, he responded, ''You guys are very rude. Don't you have any respect for the dead?'' At 3.20 a.m., Gacy arrived at the police station covered in mud, claiming that he had been involved in a car accident. On returning to the police station later that day, Gacy denied any involvement in Pice's disappearance and repeated that he had not offered him a job. When asked why he had returned to the pharmacy, Gacy reiterated that he had done so in response to a phone call from Torf informing him he had left his appointment book at the store. Detectives had already spoken with Torf, who denied calling Gacy. At the request of detectives, Gacy prepared a written statement detailing his movements on December 11th. Suspecting Gacy might be holding Pice against his will at his home, Desplaines police obtained a search warrant to search Gacy's house on December 13th. This search of the property revealed several suspicious items. Including several police badges and a six-millimeter starter pistol inside of an office drawer, a syringe and hypodermic needle inside of a cabinet in Gacy's bathroom. Investigators also found handcuffs, several books on homosexuality with titles such as *The Great White Swallow* and *Pretty Boys Must Die*, seven pornographic film films, and an 18-inch dildo in Gacy's bedroom. A 39-inch 2x4 with two holes drilled into each end, bottles of Valium and a Trophene, and several driver's licenses were found in the northwest bedroom. A blue hooded parka was found atop a toolbox inside the laundry room. An underwear too small to fit Gacy was located inside of a bathroom closet. In the northwest bedroom, investigators found a, a class of 1975 Main West High School ring engraved with the initials JAS. Investigators also recovered a Nissan, Nissan Pharmacy photo receipt from a trash can alongside a 36-inch section of nylon rope. The Des Plaines Police confiscated Gacy's Oldsmobile and other PDM work vehicles. Police assigned two alternate two-man surveillance teams to monitor Gacy on a rotational 12-hour basis as they continued their investigation into his background and potential involvement in Pice's disappearance. These surveillance teams consisted of officers Mike Albrecht and David Hatchmeister, and Ronald Robinson and Robert Schultz. The following day, investigators received a phone call from Michael Rossi, who informed the investigators of Gregory Godzik's disappearance and the fact that another PDM employee, Charles Hatula, had been found drowned in an Illinois river earlier that year. On December 15th, Des Plaines investigators obtained further details of Gacy's battery charge. Learning the complainant, Jeffrey Rignall had reported that Gacy had lured him into his car, then chloroformed, raped, and tortured him, before dumping him with severe chest and facial burns and rectal bleeding in Lincoln Park the following morning. In an interview with Gacy's former wife the same day, they learned of the disappearance of John Budkovich. The Main West High School ring was traced to John Allen Sizzick. An interview with Sizzik's mother revealed that several items from her son's apartment were also missing, including a Motorola TV. By December 16th, Gacy was becoming affable with the surveillance detectives, regularly inviting them to join him for meals in restaurants, and occasionally for drinks in bars or at his home. He repeatedly denied that he had anything to do with Pice's disappearance and accused the officers of harassing him because of his political connections, or because of his recreational drug use. Knowing these officers were unlikely to arrest him on anything trivial, he taunted them by flouting traffic laws and succeeded in losing his pursuers more than once. That afternoon, Cram consented to a police interview, in which he described Gacy's hard-working lifestyle and open-minded attitude about sex between men. Cram also revealed that because of his poor timekeeping, Gacy had once given him a watch, explaining that he got it, quote, from a dead person. Investigators conducted a formal interview of Rossi on December 17th. He informed them Gacy had sold Sizzick's vehicle to him, explaining that he had bought the car from Sizzik before because he needed money to move to California. A further examination of Gacy's Oldsmobile was conducted on this date. In the course of examining the trunk of the car, investigators discovered a small cluster of fibers they suspected to be human hair. That evening, officers conducted a test using three trained German Shepherd search dogs to determine whether Peist had been present in any of Gacy's vehicles. One dog approached Gacy's Oldsmobile and lay on the passenger seat, and what the dog handler informed investigators was a death reaction, indicating Pi's body had been present in the vehicle. That evening, Gacy invited detectives to a restaurant for a meal. In the early hours of December 18th, he invited them into another restaurant where, over breakfast, he talked of his business, his marriages, and his activities as a registered clown. At one point during the conversation, Gacy remarked, You know, clowns can get away with murder. By December 18th, Gacy was beginning to display signs of strain from the constant surveillance. He was unshaven, looked tired, appeared anxious, and was drinking heavily. That afternoon, he drove to his lawyer's office to prepare a $750,000 civil suit against the Des Plaines police, demanding that they cease their surveillance. The same day, the serial number of the Nissen Pharmacy photo receipt found in Gacy's kitchen was traced to 17-year-old Kimberly Byers, a colleague of Peist at Nissen Pharmacy. Byers admitted, when contacted in person the following day, that she had worn the jacket on December 11th to shield herself from the cold. She had placed the receipt in the parka pocket just before she gave the coat to Peist as he left the store, claiming a contractor wanted to speak with him. This statement contradicted Gacy's previous statements that he had no contact with Robert Peist on the evening of December 11th. The same evening, Rossi was interviewed a second time. This time, he was more cooperative. He informed detectives that in the summer of 1977, at Gacy's behest, he had spread 10 bags of lime in the crawl space of Gacy's house. On December 19th, investigators began compiling evidence for a second search warrant for Gacy's house. The same day, Gacy's lawyers filed the civil suit against the Des Plaines police. The hearing for the suit was scheduled for December 22nd. That afternoon, Gacy invited the surveillance detectives inside his house again. As Officer Robinson distracted Gacy with conversation, Officer Schultz walked into Gacy's bedroom in an unsuccessful attempt to write down the serial number of the Motorola TV set that they had suspected belonged to John Sizek. While flushing Gacy's toilet, the officer noticed a smell he suspected could be that of rotting corpses emanating from a heating duct. The officers, who had searched Gacy's house previously, had failed to notice this, as the house had been cold. Investigators interviewed both Cram and Rossi on December 20th. Rossi had agreed to be interviewed in relation to his possible links with John Sizek as well as the disappearance of Robert Peist. When questioned by Kazaninzak as to where he believed Gacy had concealed Peist's body, Rossi replied Gacy may have placed the body in the crawl space, adding that he thought Sizzik's car was stolen. Rossi agreed to submit to a polygraph test. He denied any involvement in Pike's disappearance, also denying any knowledge of his whereabouts. He soon refused to continue the questioning, and Rossi's erratic and inconsistent responses to questions while attached to the polygraph machine rendered the detective unable to render a definite opinion as to the truthfulness of his answers. Rossi did, however, further discuss the trench digging that he did in the crawl space and remarked on Gacy's insistence that he did not deviate from where he was instructed to dig. Cram informed investigators of Gacy's attempts to rape him in 1976. He stated that after he and Gacy had returned to his home after after the December 13th search of his property, Gacy had turned pale after seeing a clod of mud on his carpet, which he suspected had come from his crawlspace. Cram said Gacy had grabbed a flashlight and immediately entered the crawl space to look for evidence of digging. When asked whether he had been to the crawl space, Cram replied that he had once been asked by Gacy to spread lime down there and had also dug trenches, which Gacy had explained were for drainage pipes. Cram stated that these trenches were two feet wide, six feet long, and two feet deep, the size of graves. On the evening of December 20th, Gacy drove to his lawyer's office in Park Ridge to attend a scheduled meeting, ostensibly to discuss the progress of his civil suit. Upon his arrival, Gacy appeared anxious and disheveled and immediately asked for an alcoholic drink, whereupon Sam Amaranti fetched a bottle of Seagram's whiskey from his car. Gacy immediately imbibed two capfuls of whiskey, Amarant, by this stage, dubious of Gacy's repeated and incessant claims of innocence, then asked Gacy what he had to discuss with them, placing a copy of the Daily Herald upon his desk, stating, You said you had something new to tell me, something important. Gacy picked up the newspaper from the desk, pointed down to the front page article covering the disappearance of Robert and said, This boy is dead. He's dead. He's in a river. Gacy then proceeded to give a rambling confession that ran into the early hours of the following morning. He began by informing Amaranth and Stevens that he had been the judge, jury, and executioner of many, many people, and that he now wanted to be the same for himself. He said that he had murdered at least 30 victims, most of whom he had buried in his crawlspace, and had disposed of five other bodies in the Desplains River. Gacy dismissed his victims as male prostitutes, hustlers, and liars, to whom he gave the rope trick, adding he sometimes awoke to find dead strangled kids on his floor with their hands cuffed behind their back. He had buried their bodies in his crawl space as he believed they were his property. As a result of the alcohol he had consumed, Gacy fell asleep midway through his confession. Amarante immediately arranged a psychiatric appointment for Gacy at 9 a.m. that morning. On awakening several hours later, Gacy shook his head when informed by Amarante that he had confessed to killing approximately 30 people, saying, Well, I can't think about this right now. I've got things to do. Ignoring his lawyer's advice regarding his scheduled appointment, Gacy left their office to attend the needs of his business. Gacy later recollected his memories of his final day of freedom as being hazy, adding he knew his, his arrest was inevitable and that he intended to visit his friends and say his final farewells. After leaving his lawyer's office, Gacy drove to a gas station where, in the course of final, filling his rental car, he handed a small bag of cannabis to the attendant, who immediately handed the bag to the surveillance officers, adding that Gacy had told him, the end is coming for me. These guys are going to kill me. Gacy then drove to the home of a fellow contractor and friend, Ronald Rode. Gacy hugged Rode before bursting into tears and saying, I've been a bad boy. I killed 30 people, give or take a few. Gacy left Road and drove to Cram's house to meet with Cram and Rossi. As he drove along the expressway, the surveillance officers noted that he was holding a rosary to his chin, praying while he drove. After talking with Cram and Rossi, Gacy had Cram drive him to a scheduled meeting with lawyer Leroy Stevens on the northwest side. As Gacy spoke with Stevens, Cram informed of the surveillance officers that Gacy had told him and Rossi that he had confessed to over 30 murders with his lawyers the previous evening. Gacy then had Cram drive him to Mary Hill Cemetery where his father was buried. As Gacy drove to various locations that morning, police outlined the formal draft of their second search warrant, specifically specifically to search for the body of Robert Pice in the crawl space. On hearing from the surveillance detectives that in light of his erratic behavior, Gacy might be about to commit suicide, police decided to arrest him on a charge of possession and distribution of cannabis in order to hold him in custody, as the formal request for a second search warrant was presented at 4.30 p.m. on December 21st, the eve of the hearing of Gacy's civil suit. Judge Marvin J. Peters granted the request for a second search warrant. After police informed Gacy of their intentions to search his crawlspace for the body of Peist, Gacy denied the teenager was buried there, but confessed to having killed in self-defense a young man whose body was buried in, under his garage. Armed with the signed search warrant, police and evidence technicians drove to Gacy's home. On their arrival, officers found Gacy had unplugged his sump pump, flooding the crawl space with water. To clear it, they simply re- replaced the plug and waited for the water to drain. After it had done so, Evans Technician Daniel Gentry entered the 28 by 38 foot crawl space, crawled to the southwest area, and began digging. Within minutes, he had uncovered putrefied flesh and a human arm bone. Gentry immediately shouted to the investigators that they could charge Gacy with murder, adding, "'I think this place is full of kids.' A police photographer then dug into the northeast corner of the crawlspace, uncovering a patella. The two then began digging in the southeast corner, uncovering two lower leg bones. The victims were too decomposed to be piced. As the body discovered in the northeast corner was later unearthed, a crime scene technician discovered the skull of a second victim alongside this body. Later excavations of the feet of the second victim revealed a further skull beneath the body. Because of this, technicians returned to the trench where the first body was unearthed, discovering the rib cage of a fourth victim within the crawlspace, confirming the scale of the murders. After being informed that the police had found human remains in his crawlspace and that he would now face murder charges, Gacy told officers that he wanted to, quote, clear the air. Adding, he had known his arrest was inevitable since a previous evening which he had spent on the couch in his lawyer's office. In the early morning hours of December 22nd, and in the presence of his lawyers, Gacy provided a formal statement in which he had confessed to murdering approximately 30 young males, all of whom, he claimed, had entered his house willingly. Some victims were referred to by name, but Gacy claimed not to know or remember most of the names. He claimed all were teenage male runaways or male prostitutes, the majority of whom he had buried under his crawlspace. Gacy claimed to have dug only five of the victim's graves in this location, and had his employees, including Greg Godz- Godzik, dig the remaining trenches so that he would have graves available. One victim hailed from Round Lake, another had been a Michigan native. When shown a driver's license issued to a Robert Haston, which had been found on his property, Gacy claimed not to know him, but admitted that this license had been in the possession of one of his victims. In January of 1979, he had planned to conceal the corpses even further by covering the entire crawl space with concrete. When questioned specifically about Peist, Gacy confessed to luring him to his house and strangling him on the evening of December 11th. He also admitted to having slept alongside Peist's body that evening, before disposing of the corpse in the Des Plaines River in the early hours of December 13th. On his way to the police station, he had been in a minor traffic accident after after disposing of Peist. His vehicle had slid off an ice-covered road and had to be towed from its location. Accompanied by police, his lawyers, and his older sister, Gacy was driven to the I-55 bridge on December 23rd to pinpoint the precise spot where he confessed to having thrown the body of Robert Peist and four other victims into the Des Plaines River. Gacy was then taken to his house and instructed to mark his garage floor with orange spray paint to show where he had buried the individual he had supposedly killed in self-defense, whom he named as John Butkovich. To assist officers in their search for the victims buried beneath his house, during his confession, Gacy drew a rough diagram of his basement on a phone message sheet to indicate where their bodies were buried. Twenty-six bodies were unearthed from Gacy's crawlspace over the next week. Three more were also unearthed elsewhere on his property. Cook County Medical Examiner Robert Stein supervised the exhumations. Each victim unearthed from the crawlspace was placed in a body bag, which was placed near the front door awaiting transportation to the mortuary. The crawlspace was marked in sections, and each body was given an identifying number. The first body recovered from the crawlspace was assigned a marker denoting the victim as body 1. Gacy had buried this victim in the northeast section of the crawlspace directly beneath the room he used as his office. No cause of death could be determined. The body of John Butkovich was labeled as Body 2. On December 23rd, investigators returned to unearth three corpses which had been buried in the same trench as Body 1. Body 3 was buried in the crawl space directly above Body 4. Alongside them, Body 5 was buried directly beneath Body 1. This victim was buried 36 inches below the surface of the soil, indicating that he was the first descendant to be buried in this common grave. The search for victims was postponed temporarily over Christmas. Four more bodies were unearthed on December 26. Bodies number six and seven were buried in the same grave. Body seven was found in a fetal position. A cloth gag was found in the mouth, leading investigators to conclude this victim most likely died of asphyxiation. Body eight was found with the tourniquet used to strangle him still knotted around his neck. Body 9 was found beneath a layer of concrete and was found to have several stab wounds to the ribs and sternum, suggesting he was Gacy's first victim. On December 27th, 8 more bodies were discovered. Body 10 was buried face upwards, parallel to the wall of the crawlspace, directly beneath the entrance to Gacy's home. Both body 11 and 12 were found face downward, with ligature around their necks, Both were buried beside each other in the center of the crawl space, directly beneath the hallway. Body 13 was found beneath the spare bedroom. Bodies 14 and 15 were recovered from a common grave diagonal to body 10. Both 14 and 15 were found with their head and upper torsos inside separate plastic bags. Body 16 was found close to body 13 although in a separate trench further north of the south wall. This victim was found with a cloth rag lodged deep in his throat, causing him to die of suffocation. The seventeenth victim was found with a ligature around his neck. The following day, four more bodies were exhumed. Body nineteen was buried directly beneath Casey's master bedroom, perpendicular to body eighteen which was located beneath the spare bedroom and found with a ligature around the neck. Body 20 was buried in the northwest corner of the crawl space, perpendicular to Body 19. By the December 29th, six more bodies were unearthed. Bodies 22, 23, 24, and 26 were buried in a common grave located beneath Gacy's kitchen and laundry room, with Body 25 located beneath Gacy's bathroom. Body 22 was found directly beneath Gacy's kitchen with a section of cloth-like material lodged in his throat. Two socks were recovered from the pelvic region. This victim was buried directly beneath Body 21. The bones of victims 23 and 24 were commingled together and a section of cloth was found inside of the mouth of Bodies 24 and 26. Body 25 was found beneath Gacy's bathroom with a section of cloth lodged in the throat. The final victim recovered from the crawl space was also found beneath the bathroom, buried ten inches below the surface of the soil. This victim was found to have a section of cloth lodged deep in his throat. Operations were suspended due to the Chicago blizzard of 1979, but resumed in March despite Gacy's insistence that all the buried victims had been found. On March 9th, Body 28 was found wrapped within several dry cleaner and plastic garbage bags and buried beneath the patio, approximately 15 feet from the barbecue pit in Gacy's backyard. On March 16th, Body 29 was found beneath the dining room floor. All the victims discovered at 8213 West Somerdale were in an advanced state of decomposition. Dental records and x-ray charts helped... Stein identified the remains. Twenty three victims were identified via dental records, with two further victims identified via skeletal trauma. These identifications were also supported with personal artifacts found in Gacy's home. The head and upper torso of several bodies unearthed beneath Gacy's property had been placed in a plastic bags. Several were also found with ropes still around their necks. In some cases, bodies were found with foreign objects such as prescription bottles lodged into their pelvic region, the position of which indicated the items had been thrust into the victim's anus. Stein concluded twelve victims recovered from Gacy's property died not of strangulation, but of asphyxiation. Gacy's vacant house was demolished in 1979. Gacy was brought to trial on February 6, 1980, charged with 33 murders. He was tried in Cook County, Illinois, before Judge Louis Garoppolo. The jury was selected from Rockford because of extensive press coverage in Cook County. At the request of his defense counsel, Gacy spent over 300 hours with doctors at the Menard Correctional Center the year before his trial. He underwent a variety of psychological tests before a panel of psychiatrists to determine whether he was mentally competent to stand trial. Gacy attempted to convince the doctors that he had multiple personality disorder. He claimed to have four personalities. The hard-working, civic-minded contractor, the clown, the active politician, and a policeman called Jack Hanley, whom he referred to as Bad Jack. When Gacy had confessed to the to police, he claimed to be relaying the crimes of Jack, who detested homosexuality and who viewed male prostitutes as weak, stupid, and degraded scum. His lawyers opted to have Gacy plead not guilty by reason of insanity to the charges against him. In his opening statements to the jury, one of Gacy's defense attorneys, Robert Motta, remarked, The insanity defense has been looked upon as an escape, a defense of last resort. The defense of insanity is valid and is the only defense that we can use here, because that is where the truth lies. Because if Gacy is normal, then our concept of normality is totally distorted. Presenting Gacy as a Jekyll and Hyde character, the defense produced several psychiatric experts who had examined him. Three psychiatric experts at Gacy's trial testified that they found him to be a paranoid schizophrenic with multiple personalities. The prosecutors presented the case that Gacy was sane and in full control of his actions. To support this contention, they produced several witnesses to testify to the premeditation of Gacy's actions and the efforts that he took to escape detection. Those doctors refuted the defense doctor's claims of multiple personalities and insanity. Cram and Rossi testified that Gacy had made them dig drainage trenches and spread bags of lime in his crawl space. Both said Gacy looked periodically into the crawl space to ensure that they and other employees they supervised did not deviate from the precise locations that he had marked. On February 18th, Robert Stein testified that all the bodies recovered from Gacy's property were markedly decomposed and putrefied, skeletalized remains, and that all of the autopsies he performed, 13 victims had died of asphyxiation six of ligature strangulation and one of multiple stab wounds to the chest in 10 in undetermined ways when gacy's defense team suggested that all 33 deaths were caused by accidental erotic asphyxia stein called this highly improbable jeffrey ringnall testified on behalf of the defense on february 21st recounting his ordeal Rignall wept repeatedly while describing Gacy's torture of him in March of 1978. Asked whether Gacy appreciated the criminality of his actions, Rignall said that he believed that Gacy was unable to conform his action to the law's expectations because of the beastly and animalistic ways he attacked me. During specific cross-examination relating to the torture, Rignall vomited and was excused from further testimony. On February 29th, Donald Voorhees, whom Gacy sexually assaulted in 1967, testified to his ordeal at Gacy's hands and his subsequent attempts to dissuade him from testifying by paying another youth to spray mace in his face and beat him. Voorhees felt unable to testify, but did briefly attempt to do so before being asked to step down. Robert Donnelly testified the week after Voorhees recounting his ordeal at Gacy's hands in December of 1977. Donnelly was visibly distressed as he recalled the abuse that he endured and came close to breaking down several times. As Donnelly testified, Gacy repeatedly laughed at him, but Donnelly finished his testimony. During Donnelly's cross-examination, one of Gacy's defense attorneys, Robert Mata, attempted to discredit his testimony. But Donnelly did not waver from his testimony of what had occurred. During the fifth week of the trial, Gacy wrote a personal letter to Judge Jaroppo requesting a mistrial for reasons including that he did not approve of his lawyer's insanity plea, that his lawyers had not allowed him to take the witness stand as he wanted to do, that his defense had not called enough medical witnesses, and that the police were lying with regard to verbal statements he had allegedly made to detectives after his arrest and that in any event the statements were self-serving for use by the prosecution judge garapo addressed gacy's letter by informing him that both counsels had not been denied the opportunity or funds to summon expert witnesses to testify and that under the law he had the choice whether he wished to testify and was free to indicate as much to the judge if you wish to do so. On March 11th, final arguments by both prosecution and defense attorneys began. They concluded the following day. Prosecuting attorney Terry Sullivan spoke first, outlining Gacy's history of abusing youths, the testimony of his efforts to avoid detection, and describing his surviving victims, he's in Donnelly, as living dead. Referring to Gacy as, the worst of all murderers, Sullivan stated, John Gacy has accounted for more human devastation than many earthly catastrophes, but one must tremble. I tremble when thinking about just how close he came to getting away with it all. After the state's four-hour closing, Counsel Sam Amarante spoke for the defense. Amarenti argued against the testimony delivered by the doctors who had testified for the prosecution, repeatedly citing the testimony of the four psychiatrists and psychologists who had testified on behalf of the defense. Amarenti also accused Sullivan of scarcely referring to the evidence presented throughout the trial in his own closing argument and of arousing hatred against his client. The defense lawyer attempted to portray Gacy as a man driven by compulsions he was unable to control. Contending the state had not met their burden of proof, Gacy sane beyond a reasonable doubt. In support of these arguments, the defense referred to the testimony of the doctors who had appeared for the defense. In addition to the defense witnesses such as Jeffrey Rignall and a former business associate of Gacy's name, Mickle Reed both of whom had testified to their belief that Gacy had been unable to control his actions. Amoriti then urged the judge to put aside any prejudice they held against his client and asked they deliver a verdict of not guilty by reason of insanity, adding that Gacy was a danger to both himself and to others, and that studying his psychology and behavior would be of benefit to science. On the morning of March 12th, William Kunkel continued to argue for the prosecution. Kunkel referred to the defense's contention of insanity as a sham, arguing that the facts of the case demonstrated Gacy's ability to think logically and control his actions. Kunkel also referred to the testimony of one of the doctors who had examined Gacy in 1968 and had concluded that he was an antisocial personality capable of committing crimes without remorse and unlikely to benefit from social or psychiatric treatment, stating that had the recommendations of the doctor been heeded, Gacy would not have been freed. At the close of his argument, Kunkel removed photos of Gacy's 22 identified victims from a display board and asked the jury not to show sympathy but to show justice. Kunkel then asked the jury, to show the same sympathy this man showed when he took these lives and put them there. Before throwing the stack of photos into the opening of the trapdoor from Gacy's crawlspace, which had been introduced as evidence and was on display in the courtroom, after Kunkel had finished his testimony, the jury retired to consider their verdict. The jury deliberated for one hour and 50 minutes before announcing that they had reached their verdicts. Gacy was found guilty of 33 charges of murder. He was also found guilty of sexual assault and taking indecent liberties with a child, both convictions in reference to the Robert Peist. At the time, his conviction for 33 murders was the most for which any person in U.S. history had been convicted. In the sentencing phase of the trial, the jury deliberated for more than two hours before sentencing Gacy to death for each murder committed after the Illinois Statue on Capital Punishment came into effect in June of 77. His execution was set for June 2, 1980. On being sentenced, Gacy was transferred to the Menard Correctional Center where he remained incarcerated on death row for 14 years. Before his trial, Gacy initiated contact with WLS-TV journalist Rush Ewing, to whom he granted numerous interviews between 1979 and 1981. Ewing later collaborated with author Tim Cahill to publish the book Buried Dreams. The information Gacy divulged to Ewing regarding the circumstances of his first murder would prove instrumental in establishing the identity of his first victim. On February 15, 1983, Henry Brisbane, a fellow death row inmate known as the I-57 killer, stabbed Gacy in the upper arm with a sharpened wire as Gacy was practicing in a voluntary work program. A second death row inmate injured in the attack, William Jones, received a superficial stab wound to the head. Both received treatment in the prison hospital for their wounds. On the morning of May 9, 1994, Gacy was transferred from the Menard Correctional Center to Stateville Correctional Center in Crest Hill to be executed. That afternoon, he was allowed a private picnic on the prison grounds with his family. For his last meal, Gacy ordered a bucket of KFC, a dozen fried shrimp, french fries, fresh strawberries, and a Diet Coke. That evening, he observed prayer with a Catholic priest from whom he received the last rites before being escorted to the Stateville execution chamber to receive a lethal injection. Before the execution began, the chemicals used to affect the execution solidified unexpectedly, clogging the IV tube used to administer the chemicals into Gacy's arm, complicating the procedure. Blinds covering the window through which witnesses observed the execution were drawn. The execution team replaced the clogged tube. After 10 minutes, the blind were reopened and the execution resumed. The entire procedure took 18 minutes. Anesthesiologists blamed the problem on the prison official's inexperience at conducting an execution, saying that had correct execution procedures been followed, the complications would never have occurred. This error apparently led to Illinois adopting an alternative method of lethal injection. On this subject, one prosecutor at Gacy's trial, William Kunkel, said he got a much easier death than any of his victims. According to published reports, Gacy was a diagnosed psychopath who did not express any remorse for his crimes. His final statement to his lawyer before his execution was that killing him would not compensate for the loss of others and that the state was murdering him. His final spoken words were reported to be kiss my ass, although Prosecutor William Kunkel stated in 2020 that these words were spoken to a prison official and were not part of any official statement prior to Gacy's execution. In the hours leading up to Gacy's execution, a crowd estimated at over 1,000 gathered outside the correctional center. A vocal majority were in favor of the execution although a small number of anti-death penalty protesters were also present. Some of those in favor of the execution wore t-shirts, hearkening to Gacy's previous community service as a clown and bearing satirical slogans such as, No Tears for the Clown. The anti-death penalty protesters present observed a silent candlelight vigil. After Gacy's death was confirmed at 12.58 a.m. on May 10, 1994, his brain was removed. It is in the possession of Helen Morrison, a witness for the defense at Gacy's trial, who has interviewed Gacy and other serial killers in an attempt to isolate common personality traits of violent sociopaths. His body was cremated. Well, that is going to do it for today's episode. I hope that everyone enjoyed this story. And if you did, please rate and review on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. A five-star rating really helps others to find us. Don't forget to join us on Facebook, to follow us on Instagram, and subscribe on YouTube. Thank you in advance for subscribing on YouTube and helping to reach my goal of 500 subscribers. If you do enjoy the show please consider helping to support the show by joining us on Patreon with monthly bonus episodes being available from the $5 tier. Once again, thank you all for listening, and make sure to keep your doors and windows locked and stay ready for Ohio Unsolved.